This is the Sabbath School lesson for the fourth quarter, 2021. Lesson 13 from our series Present Truth in Deuteronomy is titled The Resurrection of Moses, ready for teaching on December 25, and I'm Percy Harold. Sabbath afternoon, December 18. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we come to this last lesson in the series from the book of Deuteronomy, as we look at the life and death and resurrection of Moses, and as during this week around the world so many people's eyes are turned to the birth and life of Jesus, that your Holy Spirit will guide us as we open your word. We pray that not only will we gain information, but that we will more fully understand who you are, what you are like, and what you want for us. Because we know that in sending your Son Jesus, each of us has the opportunity for not just eternal life, but to be with you forever. Bless us now as we open your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Jude Verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Let's read that again, Jude verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. As we've seen all quarter, Moses is a central mortal in Deuteronomy. His life, his character, his messages pervade the book. Though, yes, Deuteronomy is about God and his love for Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, God often used Moses to reveal that love and to speak to his people, Israel. Now, as we come to the end of the quarter, the end of our study of Deuteronomy, we also come to the end of Moses' life, at least his life here. As Ellen G. White expressed it, Moses knew that he was to die alone. No earthly friend would be permitted to minister to him in his last hours. There was a mystery and awfulness about the scene before him from which his heart shrank. The severest trial was his separation from the people of his care and love, the people with whom his interest and his life had so long been united. But he had learned to trust in God, and with unquestioning faith he committed himself and his people to his love and mercy. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 470 and 71. As Moses' life and ministry revealed much about the character of God, so too does his death and resurrection. Sunday, December 19, The Sin of Moses, Part 1 Time and again, even amid their apostasy and wilderness wanderings, God miraculously provided for the children of Israel. That is, however undeserving they were, and often remained that way, God's grace flowed out to them. 
We too, today, are recipients of His grace, however much we are undeserving of it as well. After all, it wouldn't be grace if we deserved it, would it? And besides the abundance of food that the Lord had miraculously provided for them in the wilderness, another manifestation of His grace was the water, without which they would quickly perish, especially in a dry, hot and desolate desert. Talking about that experience, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.4, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Ellen G. White also added that wherever in their journeyings they wanted water, there from the clefts of the rock it gushed out beside their encampment. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 411. Read Numbers 20, verses 1 to 13. What happened here, and how do we understand the Lord's punishment for Moses because of what he had done? Numbers 20, beginning at verse 1. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord! Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. On one level, it's not hard to see and understand Moses' frustration. After all that the Lord had done for them, the signs and wonders, the miraculous deliverance, here they are, finally, on the borders of the promised land. And then what? Suddenly they are short of water, and so they begin to conspire against Moses and Aaron. Was it that the Lord could not provide water for them now, as he had done for them so often before? Of course not. He could have, and was going to do so again. However, Look at Moses' words as he struck the rock even twice. Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Numbers 20 verse 10. 
One can all but hear the anger in his voice, for he begins by calling them rebels. The problem wasn't so much his anger itself, which was bad enough, but understandable, but when he said, Must we bring water for you out of this rock? As if he or any human being could bring water out of a rock. In his anger, he seemed to forget at that moment that it was only the power of God working among them that could do such a miracle. He of all people should have known that. And so to finish the day, how often do we say or even do things in a fit of anger, even if we believe the anger is justified? How can we learn to stop, pray and seek the power of God to say and do right before we say and do wrong instead. Monday, December 20 The Sin of Moses, Part 2 Read again Numbers 20, verses 12 and 13. What specific reason did the Lord give to Moses for why he couldn't go over because of what he did? Numbers 20, beginning at verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. And we'll also look at Deuteronomy 31 verse 2. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. Also the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. And Deuteronomy 34 verse 4. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. According to this text, there was more to Moses' sin than just his own attempt to take the place of God, which was bad enough. He also showed a lack of faith, which for someone like Moses would be inexcusable. After all, this is the man who from the burning bush, as recorded in Exodus chapter 3 onward, had had, unlike most people, an experience with God, and yet, according to the text, Moses did not believe me. That is, Moses showed a lack of faith in what the Lord had said, and as a result he had failed to hallow me before the children of Israel. In other words, had Moses kept his calm and done the right thing by showing his own faith and trust in God amid their apostasy, he would have glorified the Lord before the people and been again an example to them of what true faith and obedience were like. Notice, too, how Moses had disobeyed what the Lord told him specifically to do. Read Numbers 20, verse 8. What had the Lord told Moses to do, but what did Moses do instead? Numbers 20, verse 8. Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals.
And what did he do in verses 9 to 11? So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Verse 9 was Moses taking the rod as the Lord had commanded him. So far, so good. But by verse 10, instead of speaking to the rock, from which water would have flowed as an astounding expression of God's power, Moses struck it, not once, but twice. Yes, hitting a rock and having water come from it was miraculous, but certainly not as miraculous as just speaking to it and seeing the same thing happening. Sure, on the surface it might have seemed that God's judgment upon Moses was extreme. After all that Moses had been through, he was not going to be allowed to cross over into the Promised Land. For as long as this story has been told, people have wondered why, because of one rash act, would what he had been anticipating for so long be denied him. So to finish the day, what lesson do you think the children of Israel should have learned from what happened to Moses? Tuesday, December 21, The Death of Moses Poor Moses, having come so far, having gone through so much, only to be left out of the fulfilment of the promise made to Abram many centuries earlier, to your descendants I will give this land, Genesis 12, verse 7. Read Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 to 12. What happened to Moses, and what did the Lord say about him that showed what a special man he was? Deuteronomy 34, beginning at verse 1. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the south, and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigour diminished. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him, and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But 
Since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land, and by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Ellen White writes in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 471 and 472, In solitude, Moses reviewed his life of vicissitudes and hardships, since he turned from courtly honours and from a prospective kingdom in Egypt to cast in his lot with God's chosen people. He called to mind those long years in the desert with the flocks of Jethro, the appearance of the angel in the burning bush, and his own call to deliver Israel. Again he beheld the mighty miracles of God's power displayed in behalf of the chosen people and his long-suffering mercy during the years of their wandering and rebellion. Notwithstanding all that God had wrought for them, notwithstanding his own prayers and labours, only two of all the adults in the vast army that left Egypt had been found so faithful that they could enter the promised land. As Moses reviewed the results of his labours, his life of trial and sacrifice seemed to have been almost in vain. End of quote. Deuteronomy 34 verse 4 says something very interesting. This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. The Lord was using language almost verbatim from what he had said again and again to the patriarchs and to their children about giving them this land. Now he was repeating it to Moses. The Lord also said that, I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Deuteronomy 34 verse 4 there's no way that Moses, standing where he was, could have seen with normal vision all that the Lord had pointed him to, from Moab to Dan to Naphtali and so forth. Ellen G. White was clear. It was a supernatural revelation, not only of the land, but also of what it would look like after they had taken possession. In one sense, it would almost seem as if the Lord had been teasing Moses, rubbing it in. You could have been here had you simply obeyed me as you should have, or something like that. Instead, the Lord was showing Moses that, despite everything, even despite Moses' mistake, God was going to be faithful to the covenantal promises that he had made with the fathers and with Israel itself. As we will see, too, the Lord had something even better in store for his faithful but flawed servant. Wednesday, December 22, The Resurrection of Moses So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 and 6 
Thus, with these few verses, Moses, so central to the life of Israel, a man whose writing lives on, not only in Israel, but also even in the church and in the synagogue today as well, died. Moses died and was buried, the people mourned, and that was that. Certainly the principle of the words of Revelation applies here. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours, and their works follow them. Revelation 14.13 However, Moses' death was not the final chapter in the story of Moses' life. Read Jude 9, what is happening here, and how does this text help explain the appearance of Moses later in the New Testament? Jude verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Though we're given only a glimpse, what an incredible scene is depicted here. Michael, Christ himself, disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. Disputed over it. How? There's no doubt that Moses was a sinner. Indeed, his last known sin, the taking on himself glory that was God's, was the same kind of sin as Isaiah 14.14. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds... I will be like the Most High, that got Lucifer himself thrown out of heaven in the first place. The dispute over Moses' body must have been because Christ was now claiming for Moses the promised resurrection. But how could Christ do that for a sinner, Moses, someone who had violated his law? The answer, of course, could only be the cross. Just as all the animal sacrifices pointed ahead to Christ's death, so obviously the Lord now, looking ahead to the cross, claimed the body of Moses to be resurrected. As you read in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 479, in consequence of sin, Moses had come under the power of Satan. In his own merits, he was death's lawful captive. But he was raised to immortal life, holding his title in the name of the Redeemer. Moses came forth from the tomb, glorified and ascended with his deliverer to the city of God. And so to finish today, how does this account of Moses help us to understand the depth of the plan of salvation, that even before the cross, Moses would be raised to immortality? Thursday, December 23, The Resurrection of Us All With the added light of the New Testament, the exclusion of Moses from the Promised Land doesn't seem like much of a punishment after all. Instead of an earthly Canaan and later an earthly Jerusalem, which for all its known history has been a place of war, conquest and suffering, the heavenly Jerusalem, as recorded in Hebrews 12.22, is even now his home. A much better abode, for sure. Moses was the first known example in the Bible of the resurrection of the dead. Enoch was brought to heaven without having seen death. 
and Elijah too, but as far as the written record goes, Moses was the first one to have been resurrected to eternal life. Our first text is Genesis 5.24, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And Second Kings 2.11, Then it happened, as they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire, and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. How long Moses slept in the ground, we don't know. But as far as he was concerned, it didn't matter. He closed his eyes in death, and whether it was three hours or three hundred years, for him it was the same. It also is the same for all the dead throughout history. Their experience, at least as far as being dead goes, will be no different than Moses. We close our eyes in death, and the next thing we know is either the second coming of Jesus or, unfortunately, the final judgment, as we read in Revelation 20, verses 7 to 15. Now, when the thousand years had expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night for ever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 to 22. What great promise is found here, and why do Paul's words make sense only if we understand that the dead sleep in Christ until the resurrection? 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 13. But, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we have found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made 
alive. Without the hope of the resurrection, we have no hope at all. Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of ours, having purged our sins, as it says in Hebrews 1.3, on the cross as our sacrificial lamb, Christ died and rose from the dead, and because of his resurrection, we have the surety of ours, with Moses being the first example of a fallen human being raised from the dead. Because of what Christ would do, Moses had been raised, and because of what Christ has done, we too will be raised as well. Thus, we can find in Moses an example of salvation by faith, a faith made manifest in a life of faithfulness and trust in God, even if he faltered at the end. And all through the book of Deuteronomy, we can see Moses seeking to call God's people to a similar faithfulness, a similar response to the grace given to them as it has been given to us, we too who are on the borders of the promised land. And so to finish today, is not God, this same God, calling us to faithfulness as well? What can we do to make sure we don't make the mistakes Moses forewarned about in Deuteronomy? Friday, December 24. From the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 418, written by Ellen G. White, we read, When they angrily cried, Must we fetch you water out of this rock? They put themselves in God's place, as though the power lay with themselves, men possessing human frailties and passions. Wearied with the continual murmuring and rebellion of the people, Moses had lost sight of his almighty helper, and, without the divine strength, he had been left to mar his record by an exhibition of human weakness. The man, who might have stood pure, firm and unselfish to the close of his work, had been overcome at last. God had been dishonoured before the congregation of Israel, when he should have been magnified and exalted. End of quote. And from the same book, page 479. Upon the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses was present with Elijah, who had been translated. They were sent as bearers of light and glory from the Father to his Son. And thus the prayer of Moses, uttered so many centuries before, was at last fulfilled. He stood upon the goodly mountain, within the heritage of his people, bearing witness to him in whom all the promises of Israel centred. Such is the last scene revealed to mortal vision in the history of that man, so highly honoured of heaven. End of quote. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. 1. In one sense, yes, Moses was resurrected and brought to heaven shortly after his death. But, at the same time, poor Moses, we assume, gets to witness the terrible mess of things down here. How fortunate that most of us will be resurrected after all the struggle on earth is over, at the second coming. In what ways is this, then, a greater blessing than what Moses experienced? 2. How does the story of Moses' death and later resurrection 
show us how the New Testament, though often based on the Old Testament, does take us further than the Old Testament and can indeed shed much new light upon it. 3. How is the story of Moses' life, including smiting the rock in a fit of anger, an example of what it means to live by faith and to be saved by faith, apart from the deeds of the law? 4. In class, talk about the promise of the resurrection at the end of time. Why is this so central to all our hopes? Also, if we can trust God on this, that is, on raising us from death, shouldn't we be able to trust Him for everything else? After all, if He can do that for us, what can't He do? And so concludes the 1,230th lesson I've read for the blind over the past 25 years since 1996. And number 726 that have been put to the internet as a podcast since 2007. I trust that you are enjoying this service and that God will continue to bless you and that I'll be able to continue with this service in the future. May God bless you and may the coming year be one where God will be the centre of your life and that the salvation that Jesus offers and the friendship he offers will be yours. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Teen Makes Christmas Music and it's by Andrew McChesney. Every year, Meharu Shimizu's church organises a special Christmas program in Tokyo, Japan. Every year, Meharu wished that she could participate and somehow share her joy about Christ's birth. One fall, during her first year in university, a teacher asked her to write the lyrics for a musical. The musical turned out to be the final exam for all 30 students in her class. Miharu was supposed to write the script and lyrics, while the teacher would compose the music. Then the class would be divided into four groups, and each group would learn and sing the musical. After some prayer, Miharu put together a short story about Christmas caroling. The songs were filled with praise for Jesus at Christmas. She wasn't sure what the teacher or classmates would think. None of them were Christian. When Miharu submitted the eight-minute musical, the teacher didn't change a single word. The lyrics are very noble, he said. As the class learned and rehearsed the musical, Miharu remembered the Christmas program at church. Maybe her musical could be her contribution to the Christmas program. That Christmas she played the piano as seven classmates performed her musical at Setagaya Seventh-day Adventist Church, a church for young people in Tokyo. Young Adventists assisted the production behind the scenes. More people showed up to watch the musical than Maharu had expected. About 75 people crowded into the small church building, overflowing a space where usually only 25 church members worshipped on Sabbaths. Maharu was delighted. 
She sensed a bond with the audience. She saw that she and they were sharing the true spirit of Christmas, the joy that Jesus loves people so much that he came to the earth as a baby. Maharu was especially happy that one of her classmates was sitting in the audience. Afterward, the classmate asked for Bible studies. Miharu decided to compose another musical for the next Christmas. She wrote a musical about how her grandfather became a Seventh-day Adventist. Finding classmates to participate in the new musical proved easy. They liked the previous Christmas musical and were eager to sing again. One of the new participants was the classmate taking Bible studies. Miharu, 19, is praying that Jesus will use her musical talents to draw classmates to him. And there's a beautiful photograph of Miharu just to the left here. Thank you for your 13th Sabbath offering three years ago that helped Miharu's Setagaya Church establish a youth evangelism training centre. Part of this quarter's 13th Sabbath offering will reach out to more Japanese young people through online ministry. This lesson was read by Dr. Percy Harold for Christian Services for the Blind. Sponsored by the Sabbath School Department and distributed through Hope Channel Australia, this podcast is also redistributed by Hope Channel Germany, Christian Record Services for the Blind, and It Is Written. It is also available on SoundCloud and through multiple podcast distributors, including Apple iTunes. Remember, God is always faithful.